there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The first thing I would like to say is that I look upon singleness as a gift, not a problem. When I travel around and have opportunities to talk to single people, I usually discover that they regard it as a real problem. And they're feeling, most of them are feeling pretty sorry for themselves. Uh, they've been cheated. They're sort of behind the door when all the gifts are given out. And it's scriptural to look upon it as a gift. The Apostle Paul regarded his singleness as a great gift, and he wished that everyone were single as he was. But he said, each one is to abide in the gift which God has given him. So you're looking at a woman who has been single most of her life. You can figure out the arithmetic. I've told you how long I was married to each of my three husbands, and I will be 67 in a couple of weeks. So I've spent many more years single than I have married. And I wouldn't have chosen singleness either. I thought that I was a real oddity in my day because almost all of my friends got married by the time they were 20 or 21, and I was not married the first time until I was 26, so I felt that I was pretty much over the hill by that time. Nowadays, it seems that men are not even thinking about marriage until they get into their 30s, generally speaking, and uh, so there seem to be far more single women around longer. But it was very difficult for me to hear Jim Elliott say, when we were both very madly in love and both of us wishing that the Lord would give us a green light to get married, he pointed this out to me, that the Apostle Paul was the one who regards, regards singleness as a gift. And it was not the one I wanted. But what does it come down to if not just plain, simple trust that God not only loves us, but knows what is best for us. Jesus uses the illustration of the father who will not give his child uh, a snake if the child asks for an egg. And he won't give him a scorpion if he asks for fish, or a stone if he asks for bread. But only God knows which are the stones and the scorpions and the snakes? A lot of times they look to us like bread and fish and eggs. They look to us like good things. But your Heavenly Father gives good gifts to his children. He knows how to give good gifts to his children, and he knows exactly what is, very, is the very best thing for us. And so there are times when what we're asking for, God knows, is a scorpion. It will be a snare to us. It will be anything but the route to happiness. And so there's a deadlock because we are demanding that God give us something that God in his love cannot give. Do you really trust him? I just want you to know that I do understand those of you who feel the pain of singleness and feel that 
you are lonely in a way that no married person would ever be. We married people would say, that's true, and we know a kind of loneliness that you don't know. There are different kinds of loneliness, whatever our station and our geographical location and all the rest of it may happen to be in life. So I understand the normal human emotions because I think it is quite normal for both men and women to desire marriage. I have to be very careful when I say that because one time I made the rash statement that I thought every woman desired a husband, and I infuriated one or two women in that audience who came charging up to me afterwards and said, we want you to know that there are some of us that don't need men, and we don't want men, and you have insulted us. And so I said, well, I'm very sorry. They wanted to know why in the world I thought that it was better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. And I said, well, it's to me, it's just kind of self-evident, but I apologize for offending you. But generally speaking, uh, it is a, well, I don't have to be general about it. It is a normal thing, I think, for men and women to desire marriage. And even those who have chosen celibacy for the sake of Christ generally would not have chosen it except for the sake of Christ. And Amy Carmichael is an example of that. Amy Carmichael was that great missionary to India whose books have meant more to me than anything I could ever express I've written Amy Carmichael's biography. It's called A Chance to Die. And it was before she was 20 that she believed that God was telling her that she was to remain single. She wouldn't have chosen it, but she felt very strongly that she was not to marry. And her brothers teased her about it. She was the oldest of seven children. And her brothers challenged her as to how in the world she knew that, and she couldn't explain it. She just believed, but she didn't know why. Little could she have imagined that God was going to make her literally the mother of hundreds of Indian children. She established a work in South India for little children. That work is still going on. They still have about 450 children there. And she could not have done the work that she did if she had had her own children and family. And Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 7. Those that are single have a freedom to serve the Lord without distraction that those of us who are married simply don't have. So I understand, but I do want to emphasize that it is God's gift and it is God's choice for you. I regard everything in life as a gift. When Lars and I were in Norway one Christmas time, we were taken up into the beautiful snowy woods where a relative of his lives, and they had a hundred-year-old log cabin, a little hut called a stabu, which originally was built for the storage of clothing and food. There are many houses in Norway that have these very attractive stabus in the yard, and they had decorated this with pine boughs, and there was nothing but candlelight, and there was a little wood stove there, and on the table was just your Christmas card picture of a Norwegian feast with beautiful homemade Norwegian breads and cheeses and all the delicious meats and things that Norwegians are so big on, not to mention the cookies and the cakes and the coffee. I discovered in Norway that Norwegians take their coffee drinking more seriously than the British take their tea drinking. But on the wall was a Norwegian motto, which, of course, I couldn't read. 
about all I can say in Norwegian is Yesnak Ek Norsk, which means I can't speak Norwegian. <laughs> um, so, of course, I had to ask for translation, and it was a bit difficult. It was one of those things that you can't exactly put into English, but it was only two or three words, and the message is, all is grace. And I have never forgotten that. The more I ponder that and look at all the events of my own life, I believe it's true that all is of grace. It is grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace does two opposite things there, doesn't it? How precious did that grace appear the hour I first appeared, at the hour I first believed? So I do regard everything in life as a gift. My singleness up until I was 26, my widowhood after Jim died, my being married again to Ad and the wonderful four and a half years that he and I had together, and then my widowhood again, and now the gift of being married to Lars Gren. The only reason that I can regard everything, including the disasters in my life, as a gift is because of my total confidence in God. And I want to read you something that Charles Kingsley said. Just as soon as we turn toward him with loving confidence and say, Thy will be done, whatever chills or cripples or enslaves our spirits, clogs their powers or hinders their development, melts away in the sunshine of his sympathy. He does not free us from the pain, but from its power to dull our sensibilities, not from poverty and care, but from their tendency to narrow and harden, not from calumny, which is criticism or um, persecution, not from calumny, but from the maddening poison in its sting, not from disappointment, but from the hopelessness and bitterness of thought which it so often engenders. We attain unto this perfect liberty when we rise superior to untoward circumstances, triumph over the pain and weakness of disease, over unjust criticism, the wreck of earthly hopes, over promptings to envy, every sordid and selfish desire, every unhallowed longing, every doubt of God's wisdom and love and kindly care, when we rise into an atmosphere of undaunted moral courage or restful confidence, of childlike trust, of holy, all-conquering calm. Now, all of that depends, as he says, as we turn toward God with loving confidence and say, Thy will be done. All those other things will be taken care of. Not that he will absolve us from the pain. Not that he will transform all our human nature at once. But he will put a different light on things, a different face on things. So I start my talk on singleness on this matter of do you really trust God? Do you really believe that God knows exactly what he's doing 
and he really loves you. God didn't give me three husbands because he loves me three times as much as he loves anybody else. It has nothing to do with merit. God knew that I had a whole lot of lessons to learn, among other things, by being married to three different husbands. God knew long before I ever imagined such a thing that someday I was going to be talking on the radio to a whole lot of women at home who were having all sorts of struggles with all sorts of different husbands. And so here I am, uh, having to look back over the various things that God has been seeking to teach me, which I've not been very e easy in learning. I haven't found it very easy to learn. But my confidence is in God, and he does know exactly what he's doing, and he's got the whole world where? In his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands, and he's got every tiniest microscopic detail that involves your life in his hands. So, with that introduction, let's talk about four different things. Those of you who are taking notes, I'll try to tell you what I'm going to say, then I will try to tell you, then I will try to say it, and then I will hope to remember to tell you what I've said, so that if you go out of here and somebody says, well, did you hear old what's-her-name, what in the world did she talk about, you might be able to remember one point out of four. First is, whose am I? Not who am I, that's a question we're sick and tired of hearing, but whose? Secondly, acceptance. Third, waiting. Waiting on God. And four, offering. One, whose am I? Two, Acceptance, three, wait, waiting, four, offering. Now we need to take this initial step of an irrevocable commitment of ourselves to Jesus Christ. Very often young people come to me with the great questions that trouble them so much, and I, ha I understand so well because I was a great worrier, I was a champion worrier, and I came from long lines of champion worriers on both sides of the family. And I worried a great deal about whether I was going to get married, who I would marry, what if I married the wrong one, did God really want me to be a missionary, was it to be a foreign missionary, what if I went to the wrong country, what if I went to the wrong tribe, what if I made a mess of my missionary work. So these big questions, what college shall I go to, what do I major in, what career do I prepare for, whom do I marry, what does God want me to be a missionary, and all that. Young people will come to me with these questions. How do I find the will of God? My first question to them is, what do you really want more than anything else in the world? And I usually draw a blank. They haven't really answered that question for themselves. If, if you were asked, what do you want on your Big Mac, you might remember, you might know. You might not even know the answer to that one, but most people have some idea whether they want coffee or tea or mustard or ketchup. But when it comes to the really important decision of life, what do you want more than anything else in the world, they haven't thought about it. You know, I asked that question to my five-year-old grandson, Walter. He and I were taking a walk down the sidewalk one day, and I just turned to him and I said, Walter, what do you want more than anything else in the world? Now, I expected him to say, 
a backhoe or a cement mixer because he loved heavy equipment and he loved getting toys that looked like them. And you know, that little boy stopped in the middle of the sidewalk and he looked up at me for a minute very silently and then he said, Granny, I want to be a good brother. Now, he had two little sisters at that time. They were three and one, I guess, when he was five. I was amazed. And I thought, now that boy is on the way to doing the will of God, it sounds like, because what could be more important for a five-year-old than to be a good brother? And he's now 16, and he is a very good brother. Takes responsibility. But my question to the young person is, do you want the will of God more than anything else in the world? Well, but how can I say that I want the will of God if I don't know what it is? Well, do you expect God to give you a smorgasbord and just spread out a whole list of, whole array of choices and you pick what you like? That's not the way it works with the will of God. The will of God is a commitment to a person and it is a lifetime commitment and it is a course that you choose with your will and you move down that course like a thunderbolt. It says in Isaiah 50, verse 7, it's a prophetic passage about Jesus. It says, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded? Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem which was where the culmination of his action here on earth in doing the will of God was to take place. And he knew that he was going up there to be killed. It never deflected him by so much as an inch from his course. He had made a final decision. When he came into this world, he said, Lo, I come, and the volume of the book is written of me to do thy will, O God. And it was when I was 12 years old that I made a commitment using the words of a prayer written by Betty Scott Stamm, a missionary to China, which I copied into the back of my Bible. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt, and work out thy whole will in my life, at any cost, now and forever. And the cost to the author of those words, Betty Scott Stam, was being captured by Chinese communists, having to leave their little baby behind, and she and her husband were marched, chained, and half-naked through the streets of a Chinese village, and beheaded. I knew that story. I knew that lady. She had been in our home. Instead of turning me off, the idea of missions, it just put in me an even more powerful desire to be a foreign missionary. I didn't really know for sure that God was calling me to that, but I hoped he was. And I prayed that prayer with all the sincerity that a 12-year-old can have. Now, when any of us, 12 years old or 70 years old, prays, work out your will in my life, Lord, at any cost. Do we know what the cost will be? Not specifically, no. But yes, in a sense, 
It will be everything. The cost will be everything. Jesus said, if you're not willing to sell everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. So back to those puzzled young people. You must choose the will of God. You must choose to put yourself under his authority and ask him in honesty and earnestness, work out your will in my life, Lord. Do you want the will of God, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else? Well, I hope that's where you are this morning, able to say, I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And Bishop Mole, in his beautiful little book, Thoughts on Christian Sanctity, He says, we aim at nothing less than to walk with God all day long, to abide every hour in Christ, and he in his words in us, to love God with all our heart and our neighbors ourselves, to live, and that in no conventional sense, no longer to ourselves, but to him who died for us and rose again. We aim to yield ourselves to God, and he gives a scripture for each of these in the margin, as the unregenerate will yields itself to sin, to self, to have every thought brought into captivity to Christ, every thought, every movement of the inner world, a strict, comprehensive captivity, an absolute and arbitrary slavery. There's no mincing of words there, is there? Jesus Christ is Lord, which means He is my master. He is my commanding officer. And one of the things that impressed me about Jim Elliott was that he wrote in my yearbook not only his autograph, which he was giving to everybody, but all these girls that were panting and waiting for an autograph from Jim Elliott, of which I was just one of a long line of girls. Uh, I was hoping against hope that he would put something else besides just his name. And he put 2 Timothy 2.4 which I didn't know by heart, didn't take me very long to race back to the dormitory, grab my Bible and find 2 Timothy 2.4. And this is what it said, a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. (laughs) He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And that's spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y, wholly under his commanding officer, at his commanding officer's disposal. And I had been impressed with everything I knew about Jim Elliott up to that point, but this was the most impressive thing to me, because here is one college student, he was a junior, who's made up his mind about one thing. By far the most important thing you can ever make up your mind about. So I said, Lord, work out your will in my life when I was 12 years old. When I was a senior in college... The test had to come. We make a lot of hypothetical prayers and commitments, don't we? But it's when the rubber meets the road that we find out how honest and sincere we were about that commitment. So the testing time came. I was a senior in college. I was moving into what we called senior panic. Because on a Christian college campus, the girls all felt, if you don't find a Christian husband in a place like this, where are you ever going to find one? And obviously, I was not 
anything but a wallflower. My phone hardly ever rang. I never got invited out on dates. I was not popular in the usual sense, and I just suddenly realized my future is probably that of an old maid missionary. Because God had made it clear by that time that I was to be a foreign missionary, and I was thrilled with that, but I was not thrilled with the idea of being an old maid missionary. Now, I knew some old maid missionaries, and some of them were wonderful people. And, of course, Amy Carmichael was one of them, and I began had begun reading her books when I was 14. So, of course, I began to pray, Lord, you wouldn't want me to be single for the rest of my life, would you? He doesn't give us very many previews of coming attractions. He doesn't discuss his plans with us. He says, trust me. He didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. He said, trust me. So I prayed, and I wrestled, and I agonized, and I probably wept a few tears, and I just, over a period of weeks and months, I prayed about this matter. Lord, couldn't you just maybe give me a hint as to whether there might possibly be a husband, maybe way down the line? And he didn't say yes, and he didn't say no. He said, trust me. And then, lo and behold, to my utter incredulity, just a few weeks before I graduated, this gorgeous man named Jim Elliott that everybody on the campus thought was so wonderful and who never dated anybody asked me to go for a walk. Well, I had found myself falling madly in love with him when my brother Dave brought him home for Christmas, the previous Christmas. But I had no reason to think that Jim was in love with me or had even looked at me twice. So I was thunderstruck when he invited me to go for a walk, and of course my answer was yes, and so we started down the sidewalk. It was a beautiful sunny day in May, and he didn't waste any time to turn to me and say, well, I think we need to get it squared away how we feel about each other. (laughs) Well, I almost died. (laughs) I was just ecstatic to think that he actually had some feelings for me, but then the thought struck me of all the cheek, of all the arrogance that he thinks I have some feelings for him. Because my mother had made it very clear to me that I was never by so much as the flicker of an eyelash to try to attract a man's attention to myself. And I had thought I had been very good at that. So we began to discuss this, and he said, well, let's go and sit in the park for a while. So we sat on the grass in the park for seven hours. And Jim confessed that he had been, well, when I I said, uh, what do you mean, when he made that stunning revelation, he said, what do you mean, what do I mean, you know what I mean, I'm in love with you, and I've been been in love with you for months. Didn't you know that? I said, no, I didn't know that. And he said, well, he said, I've been trying to show you in every way I can, except verbal. He said, you must be deaf, dumb, and blind. (laughs) Well, every now and then I had had a faint hope that maybe he'd looked at me twice or done something nice, like climbing over six people to get next to me in Greek class or something, but I just told myself, don't be a fool, he'd never look at you. So he just went, went on and said, well, you know, I have been in love with you, and That was a stunning revelation. But then he said, I think maybe God is asking me to remain single, perhaps for the rest of my life. And so here we were, sitting on the grass in the park, keeping my mother's rule. He was more than arm's length away from me. He was sitting facing me, and I was sitting over here. And he said, you know, 
I've told the Lord that if he ever gives me a green light to get married, you're the woman I'd like to have, but I'm not going to propose to you, and I'm not going to ask you to wait for me. I'm going to go to Latin America, and you go ahead and go to Africa, which is where I thought I was going. And he said, if God wants to bring us together, he knows how to do that. We talked, as I said, for seven hours. We discovered that God had been taking us through the same scriptures, taking us through the same rigorous examinations of heart, teaching us the same hymns. Um, that one that begins, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, has a, has a phrase in one of the other stanzas, to quench the rising doubt, the rebel sigh, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. Another hymn, choose for us, God, nor let our weak preferring cheat us of good thou hast for us designed. Choose for us, God, thy wisdom is unerring, and we are fools and blind. And then to my amazement, I found that this man had actually been memorizing Amy Carmichael poems. And I was a fan of Amy Carmichael's. I couldn't imagine that there were any men who were fans of hers. And lo and behold, he knew the words, Lord crucified, O mark thy holy cross, on motive, preference, all fond desires, on that which self in any form inspires. Set thou that sign of loss. And when the touch of death is here and there laid on a thing most precious in our eyes, let us not wonder. Let us recognize the answer to this prayer. We found that he'd been dealing with us along exactly the same lines. Jim had a reputation of being a woman hater because he never dated. It was very far from the truth. He had discovered in high school that women can be a tremendous waste of time and money. And so he just decided that he wasn't going to have that distraction. He was going to, to head for not only a BA degree, but for an AUG degree, approved unto God. And he took that from Paul's letter to Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He had joined the wrestling team because he wanted to buffet his body and keep it in subjection lest after having preached to others, he himself should be a castaway. And he became a champion wrestler. I mean, he was a very big man on camp campus. We used to call him a BMOC, the big man on campus, or BTOs, the big-time operators, and I was just a TWO, teeny-weeny operator. <laughs> so this is why I was so amazed that he was interested in me. But what was God testing at that point? Our trust. We had made commitments to God. We'd been praying and agonizing and reading the Bible and trying to do everything that a Christian is supposed to do. But the acid test comes when the will of God cuts right across the will of man. And that's when somebody has to die. And we had to die to ourselves, to our desires, to this tremendous tornado of feelings. I know what it's like, young people. I know. I remember it very vividly. I know it's impossible for you to imagine that an old lady could, could have ever experienced anything like that, let alone remember it. To me, it's unforgettable. I can remember Jim sitting there, four feet away from me, I think, looking me straight in the eye, and he said, you know, you've got a body, the body of a woman, I've got the body of a man, and frankly, I want you. But I'm not going to touch you. I heard somebody gasp. 
That's exactly what I did, felt like doing. It's probably what I did. It takes the tests and the crossings of our will and the sorrow and the pain and the agonies and the tears in order to form Jesus Christ in the center of my being. And I do not know of any test in life, and I've been through many kinds, I don't know of any that's more crucial than the test of the willingness to surrender the question of marriage to God. Do you know what the word crucial comes from? You Latin students know. It comes from the word crux, crux, pronounced in Latin, and of course we have the word crux in English, and it means cross. And the word crucial means related to the cross. There is no more severe test. And in this day and age, it becomes more and more difficult. Will you do what God says? Will you keep yourself pure? Will you abstain from fornication? When Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Be holy, for I am holy. He's quoting what God says. Be holy, for I am holy. And then he immediately says, abstain from fornication. All kinds of sexual sin. And sex, according to God's word, is limited to one man, one woman, in one bed, under the bonds of marriage. Nothing else, period, case closed. There is no other sexual activity. I was asked one time to speak to a large group of singles in a church in Boston, and they gave me as a topic sex and the single Christian. Well, I didn't know if they were going to expect me to talk about sexual activity in the single Christian, because if that's what they wanted, then it would be the shortest speech I ever gave, because there ain't none. But we do have sexual desires, and God is not necessarily going to completely erase those desires. He is going to allow you to continue to be tested and tested and tested. The second thing is acceptance of the gifts of today. Probably many of you singles would say to me, I don't have the gift of singleness. Well, if you're single today, you have the gift of singleness. It might be different next week. God might give you something different. But for now, This is what you have to accept. And acceptance is not mere resignation, gritting your teeth, clenching your fists, white knuckles, and saying, well, if this is all you're going to give me, Lord, I guess I'm going to have to live with it. No, it's a yes, Lord, and lifting up of both hands, Lord, I receive this gift of singleness in the name of Jesus Christ, and I will carry it. I will live according to it until and unless... You change it. So many young people write to me, begging me to tell them that God is going to give them a husband someday. How am I supposed to tell them that? He doesn't want to give everybody a husband because he has a place for you and a job for you to do as a single person that nobody else can do. And of course, this applies to the divorced and to the widows as well. We are greatly blessed that there was one time when we were loved in that way. That's a very special blessing, but God doesn't give all gifts to all people, does he? He gives the gift of singleness to some. And the gift of virginity, which is an irreplaceable gift that can only be given once, do you want to give it to the right person or the wrong person? And if God doesn't give you marriage, 
then he is giving you the unspeakable privilege of making an offering of the gift of virginity to him. And it is a lifetime offering. It's a tremendous privilege. You know, we Protestants have lost a great deal. We've thrown out the baby with the bathwater back in the days of the Reformation because the Catholic Church has always understood the value of celibacy. It's not that the Catholic Church has ever taught that marriage was wrong, but there is a need in the world for spiritual fathers who have no distractions with their own families, and a tremendous need for spiritual mothers. And I have a correspondence going with one of those spiritual mothers. She's a Carmelite nun. She's sequestered. She's cloistered behind a steel grill. The only way that I can talk to her is through a steel grill. But that woman prays, and the letters that I get from her, I feel as though I'm getting letters from Amy Carmichael. She spends her life in prayer for the world. They offer their gift of virginity Have you accepted the gifts that God has given you today? We could go through a long list of gifts. Your age. I accept the gift of old age, and I thank God that I am an old woman. I don't have to say I am getting older or we're all getting older. I am older. I'm not just older, I'm old. And that's wonderful. The gift of your gender, your color, your size. I had nothing to do with being as tall as I am. I used to think of it as a great burden. But all of these things are things which God chose, and I receive them. Jesus said, a body hast thou prepared for me. And he received that body, which happened to be Jewish and male. And it was within the terms and the limitations, the radical limitations for him who had made the stars, to live within a human body. And he glorified his father that way. And he glorified God, don't forget, single. Jesus did it. You can do it too. Why why should it not be difficult for me to accept his gifts? Well, because of what I've been saying 20 different ways. He is God. He loves me. I can trust him to give me the gifts which are appropriate. And so I say, thank you, Lord, even for widowhood. Thank you, Lord. This is within the province of the working out of your will for the world. How do I know how my widowhood may bless somebody else? It's none of my business. My business is simply to give it to God. When Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000 or the 20,000, as it must have been since it was 5,000 men plus women and children, a little boy gave him his lunch, five loaves and two fishes, and one of the disciples said, but what is the good of that for such a crowd? And that's exactly what we think of, isn't it, when if you offer to God the gift of singleness or offer to God the gift of widowhood or offer to God your most tragic sorrow. What good is that? Lord, what can you possibly do if I give you this? The point was not the good of it. The point was, give it to Jesus. Let him figure out what to do with it. And I think we can, we can safely assume that Jesus can figure out what to do with whatever we give him.
He can figure it out. I began to learn this lesson very dimly when my second husband was dying of cancer. I was just filled with pain, with vicarious pain for this man who was suffering horrible physical pain in the next room. And the Lord began to show me if I have nothing in the house to offer except pain, then it's pain that I offer. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart he will not despise. If all you have is a broken heart, give it to Jesus. And you can't give it to him if you haven't accepted it. Everything I have I ha- has, is been, has been a gift. When people come up and say extravagant things about how much they've been helped by my books or my tapes or my radio programs or whatever, I know that I have nothing that I haven't received. To God be the glory. But he should take this very shy, very self-centered individual and make me an instrument of his peace. He knows what to do with what we offer. And we can't offer it if we haven't accepted it. Okay, point three. What I say to these young people who tell me that they... They know God has a husband for them down the road somewhere, or they know that God has a wife for them. Don't you think so, Elizabeth? All I can say is, he might, but he might not. You're not supposed to wait on a man. You are to wait on God. When I was arguing with God, when I found out my second husband had cancer, and saying to him, Lord, Haven't we been through this before? Do I have to lose a second husband? You wouldn't take him away from me, would you? And he was saying the same thing that he said to me when I was asking him all those questions about marriage back in college. He was saying, trust me. Well, Lord, you wouldn't take him away, would you? I might. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? Wait Only on God. The psalmist said, My soul wait thou only upon God. My expectation is from him. You don't have to go moving from town to town and traipsing all over the world and going on all the cruises you can find in order to nail a partner, a wife or a husband. And I say the same thing to you men. You know, you don't have to traipse all over the world and smell every rose before you come back and find out that the rose that God has for you is in your backyard. God knows how to bring you together with the right person at the right time. But you have to wait on God, which means in prayer, in humble, faithful acceptance of the gifts of today. Psalm 86, 11, the psalmist prayed that the Lord would give him an undivided heart. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Just before I graduated from college, Jim handed me a little tiny leather-covered hymn book, and in the front he had put number 46. So I looked up number 46, and I found a blue line drawn beside these words, Have I an object, Lord, below, which would divide my heart with thee? which would divert its even flow in answer to thy constancy. O teach me quickly to return, 
and cause my heart afresh to burn. We need to pray that God will give us an undivided heart. Wait only on God, for my expectation is from Him. Those of you who are not single, who are here, and there seem to be quite a few of you, you have expectations about all sorts of things. You're waiting on God about things that have nothing to do with marriage. Does your expectation come from the church, from your friends, from your husband, from your bank account, or from God? It's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? I want to tell you one little encouraging story about, especially for you men, about finding a wife. Charles Alexander was a very famous hymn writer, and Charles Alexander was traveling, I believe, with D.L. Moody and leading the singing. He was a young man, and I think he started traveling with Moody when he was about 22, and he went all over the world. And he was very eager to find a wife, and he had drawn up a list of the qualifications that he was looking for in a wife, as many of us do. I had drawn up a list in the back of my diary when I was about 16 with all the qualifications that I would demand in a husband. Um, Jim Elliott met most of them, but he was not six feet four, and he did not have an operatic baritone voice. <laughs> but um, Charles Alexander doesn't tell us what his list was, but anyway, he had this list. And so as he traveled around with Moody, he was always looking over the audience and wondering if the girl might be there. But he had absolutely no opportunity to meet women. It was one-night stands in very many places and staying in all sorts of places and traveling. And so when he got to be 29, for seven years he had been looking for this dream girl and praying that God would lead her to him or him to her. It wasn't until he was 29 that he got down on his knees and he said, Lord, I surrender to you my list. I don't know where she is and I don't know whether this is the right girl for me. Lord, you know who is the right girl what her qualifications are, and you know where she is. Please show me. Now, he had not done any dating. Back in those days, there was no such thing as dating, unless you call going out with somebody and having a third party along as a chaperone a date. But he had done none of that even because of the lack of opportunity. Very shortly thereafter, I'm not sure if it was the very next day or very shortly thereafter, they were still staying in the same place. They were in London, I believe. And as he and Moody went up onto the platform, a very lovely young woman also came up onto the platform and took her seat very quietly. And something said to him, there she is. He watched her. She was quiet. She was ladylike. I don't think he said that she was beautiful or gorgeous, but she was asked to give a testimony, and when she stood up to speak, there was something very gentle and quiet about the spirit with which she, she spoke, and he was absolutely convinced that God was now showing him that this is the girl. He went back that night to the very fancy mansion where he was a guest with Dr. Moody and asked his hostess if she knew this lady, and she said, yes, I do, she's my niece. And he said, would you be willing to introduce me to her? She said, I'd be delighted. So the next day, the aunt introduced the niece to D.L. Moody, and he asked her if he could take her to dinner. 
and he took her to dinner, and he asked her to marry him. They had never had a conversation, let alone any sort of intimacy. I'm always telling young people, do not get intimate until God has made it absolutely clear that this is the person that you are to marry. And girls, don't you ever assume that that's the man until the man asks you. Don't assume that. I've heard too many stories, and I have files full of them, of the girl who not only is she convinced that the Lord has told her that this is the man, but everybody in the church thinks this is the man, and her parents think it's wonderful, and all that, and the guy comes along, and he thinks it's wonderful too, and the whole story ends up with him just fading out of the picture into the sunset, and he tells her that the Lord has told him that he should break it off or whatever. It's just tragic. Now, why, why all this mess? I think it's because there's not enough prayer. There's not enough silent waiting on God. Dating is not working. So I point out to you, young men, when you get to be marriageable age, and in my day, 21 was considered marriageable age, certainly not later than that, you need to be thinking very seriously. I would recommend that you back off, that you don't date, and that you do just what Charles Alexander did. Forget about your list Just concentrate on God and trust him to bring along the right woman at the right time. Now, I spoke on this subject one time to a Sunday school class of singles, and it turned out that the man who was in charge of that group happened to be married, fairly recently married. But he stood up at the end of my talk and he said, I don't need to validate what Elizabeth Elliot says. It stands on its own. But he said, I want want to tell you that that is exactly what I did. He said, I made a mess of things. He said, I broke some hearts before I was 22 years old, and I had my heart broken more than once. And he said, finally, God got through to me. And I said, Lord, I'm going to forget it all. I'm just going to concentrate on you. I'm going to keep my mind off wives until you bring the right woman. And he said, he knows how to do that. And he did it for me. Number four, the offering up of the gift. I've already given you previews of what I'm going to say here. We can't make an offering until we have accepted what God has given us, whatever it may be. And I include divorce. You are divorced, perhaps. You can't change this. I think it's right and proper and a good and joyful thing to pray for reconciliation if your husband leaves you. But if your husband goes and marries somebody else, there's not much point in praying that you will be reconciled as husband and wife. Of course, you have to forgive him. Is it possible to say, thank you, Lord, for divorce? We know God hates divorce. But we have a God who knows how to turn ashes into beauty. He promises to give us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. But he can't give us the beauty and the oil of joy and the garment of praise if we haven't first accepted the ashes and the mourning and given it back to him. It's when we offer it back to him that he can transform that thing no matter how bad it is. And let's never forget 
that the very worst thing that men could do to a human being was done to Jesus. He was put on a cross, nailed, crowned with thorns. And it turned into the very best thing that has ever happened in human history. The worst thing that ever happened was transformed into the best thing that ever happened. Some of you are wearing little gold crosses around your neck. Can you imagine wearing a tiny little gold electric chair around your neck? That would be a horrifying idea, wouldn't it? The electric chair is the instrument of execution in some states. The cross was also the instrument of execution. How can we wear it around our necks? How can we make a gold cross or a beautiful cross in front of a church? Only because Jesus Christ transformed it for all time by suffering, by accepting that cross. And it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that he made that willed, voluntary, deliberate act. First of all, praying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He had to die the death there in the Garden of Gethsemane. He died to his self-will, which was his purely human, not sinful, but human. He knows what it's like. He knows the, the shrinking of human flesh from death. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so he was offering up himself, and he said, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. And the prophet Isaiah said, He poured out his soul unto death. He was not merely victimized. It was a voluntary offering up of himself to God. And if you have that victim syndrome or that victim concept of yourself, Remember what Jesus says, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The reward will be great in the measure in which you rejoice and receive it. The world is to be redeemed from pain in the end. But it could not be redeemed from pain without being redeemed through pain. The world could not be redeemed from pain without being redeemed through pain. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was afflicted. He poured out his soul unto death. He went like a lamb to the slaughter. He suffered in order that you and I might live. But he asks us, you and me, in whatever our circumstances may be, to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Have you thought about that mystery? To me, that's the most profound mystery in all of Scripture, that he actually asks us to have a share in the fellowship of his sufferings. The Apostle Paul said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. We'd all love to know Christ. We would all love to know the power of his resurrection. Never forget the and and the fellowship of his sufferings. And then there's those two very mysterious verses in Colossians 1, 29, I think it is. 
124. Philippians, let me read Philippians 129 first. It has been granted to you on the behalf of Christ not only to believe, but also to suffer. Not only to believe, but also to suffer. We don't hear very much about this these days. It's a gift. It has been granted to you on the behalf of Christ, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, we're, most of us would say, but I've never suffered for Christ. We don't live in Russia. We don't live in, Lith- in Lithuania and those terrible places in Romania where people have suffered. I understand that there have been more Christian martyrs in the last 50 years than in all Christian history combined. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but I just read it recently. There have been over 100,000 martyrs in China alone in the last 50 years, Christian martyrs. And we say, we don't know beans about suffering in our country. We don't suffer for Christ's sake, not really. Little things, you know, we are considered weirdos, and if you go to the PTA and you vote against what everybody else is voting for, you're certainly considered like some kind of a wacko person. But that may not have anything to do with it. Whatever the kind of suffering that God allots to you and me, if we offer it back to him, I think we're fulfilling exactly what he wants us to do in this chapter. And then here's this incredible one in Colossians 1.24. I rejoice, Paul says, in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. And I think Philip's translation says, this is my way of helping to fill up in my poor human flesh the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the body. My sufferings are not just for Elizabeth Elliot. They're for somebody else. I don't have to know how or why or when. Never underestimate the ripple effects of one man's obedience, one woman's obedience. There's no calculating what you may do by being a single man or a single woman for the glory of God. Why must we suffer? In order that we might know Christ. When Jim died, the words that God brought to my mind were from Isaiah 43, verse 2. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. Now, how could I know Christ as my refuge and my Savior? unless I need a refuge and realize how desperately I need a Savior? How can I know that he is my comfort in loneliness if I've never experienced loneliness? How can I know that he will be with me as I go through the deep waters if there are never any deep waters? You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to go into the furnace. And can you imagine their feelings as they were being prepared and bound up and the furnace was being heated seven times hotter than usual. What was going through their minds? And the king had challenged them with the greatest derision and scorn, and he said, Do you really believe that your God, whom you serve, can deliver you from this fiery furnace? And you remember that thrilling, ringing testimony of those three men. Yes, we believe that. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. 
but if not. Be it known to you, O king, don't you ever forget that we will not bow down to you or serve you. Just like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So they went into the fiery furnace, and there was another one walking there. The king looked in, in utter astonishment. He said, didn't we throw three men into the furnace, and here are four? Who was the fourth? Jesus Christ. When thou passest through the water, I will be with thee. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am the Lord thy God. I don't know anything about what your hot fire or your deep water or your dark valley may be today, but I know the one who knows. And he wants us to receive with gladness and thanksgiving whatever he has allotted for us today and to offer that back to him for his glory, for his service, for the sake of the world. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.